0: So, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 8, this morning. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7 to 13. Our text this morning, providentially arranged. So, I'm going to read, starting in verse 6, however, but the main section that we're going to consider is verse 7 through Uh, verse 6 is kind of like the leading sentence that introduces the section we're in. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better. "...since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. For he finds fault with them when he says, "...behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers." on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, for I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. Lord as we look into this text this morning help us to see the glories of that new arrangement that you have made with us on the basis of the blood of Jesus Christ help us to appreciate the the great value that created up a permanent relationship with you father we are we are weak creatures we desperately need this new arrangement. Help us not to take it for granted, but also those among us and those who may be listening, help us to examine our hearts to see if we truly are inside that new covenant arrangement, that we're resting fully on the blood of Christ to create union with you. Help us, Lord, to Have eyes to see, ears to hear, the beauty of who you are, the great extent and length that you went to build relationship with us. So, Father, as we look into this text, may may it change how we think about our relationship with you. We ask this in your name. Amen. Well, this week during a time of family worship in our own home, we read a little portion of Romans 13. Uh, Romans 13 is a text that talks about how Christians ought to relate to their governments. And so we had a moment to discuss in our family why it might be, one of our kids asked, uh, so why might it have been appropriate for Christians in 1776 to resist their government? And we discussed it. And it's a great question. Many of us still wrestle with that question even today. I think um, I have had this conversation with some others in our congregation. But the issue for Christians came down to covenant violation. Like a marriage, Britain had been unfaithful. In fact, it was an Irish member of parliament, Edmund Burke, who described the problem that was going on with the Americas, Edmund Burke said, you know, we have violated a social contract with the colonies. We've not guaranteed them the rights that we have stated that we would guarantee for them. And so the idea of social contract is something that actually was used by Christians to recognize that a covenant had been violated uh, with Mother England. And so the social covenant began to fray And that's actually very relevant to our own day. I think we need to recognize this. In California, for example, some churches have actually resisted the ordinance of the governor because the governor is inconsistently enforcing assembly. The governor has actually uh, flouted the authority of the land being the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights, guaranteeing the freedom to assemble. And... um, As a church, I think it's helpful for us to realize when we think of covenants and social covenants, this isn't intended to be a political sermon. It's actually intended to help us understand that social covenants or uh, contracts exist in all of life. And uh, in particular, as a church body, we have a covenant, which we recite at member meetings, uh, particularly in April and December. And this is what we have agreed together to do for one another, and the way we will honor our relationship with one another. Uh, In fact, uh, a covenant can only work if both parties, or those involved, are faithful to keep their word. Right? It's the only way that it can can really work. Um, social contracts or covenants have what we call terms and conditions. They, they are the things that we would expect in that relationship. And they're put in place for the safety of people who build unions together with one another. What could go wrong in agreement with another person? Have you ever made an agreement with someone that went south? It went sour often the case is uh, deceit and unfaithfulness destroy that covenant, that, that social contract that we have made with other people. One of the reasons that God hates deceit is because it destroys public trust, so that we, we, don't, we can't trust the people that we are going to engage in relationship with. Now, this morning… We're going to be looking at the terms and conditions of a social contract that's made between God and man. Terms and conditions which God in his mercy to people has kept. He has been faithful. And so it's important for us to understand the relationship here and how that union with God is affected by the permanent ministry Of Christ's blood. Now, that should sound a little bit familiar to what we heard last Sunday. The difference revolves around the word permanent versus perpetual. Last Sunday, I talked about the ministry of Christ's blood as being perpetual. Um, In fact, uh, there was a question in my own house as to what I meant by the word perpetual, and I needed to clarify what that means. Um, I wouldn't want you to misunderstand what the word perpetual means. The blood of Christ was shed once, but it has ongoing importance for the people of God. It has ongoing relevance because that once for all shed blood of Christ creates ongoing covering for sinners. It is perpetually ministering to people who have sinned. Sinners will still sin, but the shedding of Christ's blood has a perpetual ministry, but it is on the other side of a coin. It's like it's, it's permanent, and that's the side that I'm emphasizing this morning. Four points in this text I want to draw out for you this morning as relates to covenant and terms and conditions of this new covenant. First, verses. 7 through 9 show us a context of this new covenant, this new social contract that we have with God that brings us into a permanent union with Him. So the context, uh, I think we need to take a step back and look at how God has dealt with people through the ages. We need to see why God would insert a new arrangement in light of, previous arrangements. We need to understand how the Bible unrolls. In fact, it moves progressively, and there is a progressive nature in covenants. That's our first sub-point here, the progressive nature of covenants in general. You see, the new covenant occurs within a storyline of covenants, a a storyline of God dealing with people. We're not the only people that God has ever had a relationship through human history. In fact, uh, at the very beginning, God had made an agreement in the very beginning with Adam and Eve and and creation itself. In fact, the very first man and woman had relationship with God and then they broke the terms of that that relationship and were separated. So God had to reestablish a new relationship terms and conditions to have a relationship with mankind. And and so this progressed uh, through a new covenant that came through Noah with creation. In fact, uh, God made an arrangement with a person named Abraham. Abraham was uh, invested with a relationship with God in which God told him that this relationship would spell blessing for future generations. But this was going to be a a different kind of relationship, one in which God would keep both sides of the agreement and produce and guarantee a future descendant for them, for the world, who would bless all nations. Uh, Through time as the people of Abraham began to grow and multiply, God realized that there was a need for a new relationship with the people of Israel. He couldn't just deal with the the heads of the the tribe of Israel. He actually had to create a social contract with the whole people, the whole nation, the nation of Israel, and he did this through, through Moses. You know, we know the Ten Commandments, Uh, We know uh, the laws of the Old Testament. These were the terms and conditions of having a relationship with God that were established. And so that's the covenant that we talk about when we talk about the Old Covenant. There is a progressive nature, but yet there's something very unique about the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant. It has a provisional nature to it. It's temporary. It has a provisional and temporary nature, uh, uh, terms and conditions that are built into it. See, the old covenant was intended to be temporary. Notice in verse 7. In verse 7, he says, for if that first covenant had been faultless, there'd be no occasion to look for a second one. So apparently, even as it was being set up, God knew it wasn't going to work. It was going to be... Uh, needing replaced because there was something in it that would, that, would make, that would break down. It had some fault to it. Verse 8, uh, notice he says, um, he finds fault with them when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares Lord, I will establish a new covenant. And so the, the location of fault is actually in the people that God is making terms and conditions with. Think about that. Israel was expected to keep all of the terms and the conditions of the Ten Commandments and also the nearly 900 additional laws that are contained in the Old Testament. That's absolutely impossible. God knew that they would be unable to carry out those terms and conditions. And even at the end of Moses' Lifetime, he's getting ready to pass the, the responsibility of leading these people into the promised land to, to, to uh, Joshua. And he, he talks to the people and says, with an eye of a prophet, he looks ahead and he says, you know, you're not going to be able to keep these laws. God's going to have to, you know, God's going to have to do something inside of you so that you're not fault, you're not faulty. God has to create something new within you so that you're able to keep covenant with God. You can read about it in Deuteronomy 29 and 30, and a couple Sundays ago, we had it as a scripture reading. But in that text, in Deuteronomy, Moses tells of a day when God will circumcise the hearts of Israel and their offspring so that they will love God with all of their heart, with all of their soul, with all of their body and all of their might. That's anticipating something new that God is going to have to do in order to have real relationship with sinners. Jeremiah, at the end of Israel's time in, in Palestine, picks up on Moses' thoughts in Deuteronomy and starts to prophesy about this new covenant that's coming. And we read about it in... Jeremiah 31. In fact, this is where Hebrews quotes from Jeremiah 31, this anticipation of a new relationship that's coming. And Jeremiah, in his he's preaching to his people, Israel, they're about ready to be thrown out of the land. They're going to go into exile, and he tells them, "The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked." You can't even know. You may say in your, with your lips, I will keep covenant with God. I will, I will not look at this thing. I will not do this thing. I will not take this thing. I will not extort. It. I will not oppress. But you don't even know the deceitfulness of your own heart. You, before you know it, you're walking into sin. This is how Jeremiah is speaking to his people. But then he gives them hope and says, one day there's coming a day where that will change where you will be able to keep covenant with God. And God will take away the old heart and give you a new heart so that you can have relationship with him. And so there is a progressive nature to these covenants, but there's a temporary nature a temporary quality to the old covenant, but there's also a permanent nature within the new covenant. By God's grace he intends to replace the old with the new and create a permanent covenant. Now, I'm not going to weary you with the obvious here because that's, that's where this is pointing to, the replacement of the old with a permanent. But what must happen? We've been thinking about this already. What must happen to us so that we will be able to keep covenant with God? How can we love the Lord God with all of our soul, with all of our heart, with all of our body, with all of our mind? How can we do that we have to have the fundamental motivations of our hearts replaced. We have to be given a new heart to be able to do this. And so God creates in his providence, in his, in his mystery of providence, he creates new terms for a new covenant. And so in verse 10, the second point here that we have this morning is that there is a, there's terms of a new covenant. There's different parties that are involved. There are parties that we have to consist uh, consider. Look in verse 10. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Notice that there are two parties involved there. Well, you might say that there are three because he talks, about, uh, uh, he, talks, well, he talks about the house of Israel. Excuse me, there's only two here in this section. God and the house of Israel. Israel? Yes. But what about the Christians? Where do they come into play? Are we involved in this new relationship? Yes, we are. In Jeremiah's day, when he was speaking to his people, there was no anticipation in his mind, and the Spirit did not reveal to him that the Gentiles would be partakers in this new covenant. In fact, the early church was confused on this point, and it became, it was challenging for them to actually move away from Jerusalem and go into the uttermost parts of the earth to spread the good news about Jesus. They were confused on this point, and they had to have counsel, and the church came together to address this issue about the Gentiles. Well, I think we need to recognize that this is a way of God keeping the previous promises to Abraham, that the seed of his family would be a blessing to the nations. The temporary dealings with, with Israel prepared the way for a coming Messiah who would take the gospel to the nations the good news of a new relationship with God. There is also, I think we need to understand in this, because it does address Israel, there is yet a day in which this will also be fulfilled for the people of Israel. There's a lot of confusion that Christians have on this point. There is a day coming when Christ will return, a future generation of Israelites, or maybe even those living today, who when they see Christ appearing, their hearts will be broken because they will see him whom they have pierced and they will turn to the Lord and see him as their Messiah. Their rebellion and hardness of heart will be removed and their hearts will be circumcised as we have had our hearts circumcised so that we can see God. So, I hope that wasn't as clear as mud. I, I really hope it was helpful. But it simply says here that there is two parties that are involved, God and sinners. Sinners. Wait a second, does it say sinners there? Well, you're dealing with people. There has to be something fundamentally different about these people. And so, there is a description of a miracle of a new heart that occurs within, a per, within the other party. God doesn't need to change. We need to change. And so, it says, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. Now, how does that occur? How does this occur? Well, we have to look at the breadth of the New Testament to realize This was described by Jesus on that evening with Nicodemus. Jesus had said to Nicodemus (laughs) that you've got to be born again. There has to be a communication of the holiness of God into our hearts. There has to be a, a blowing of the wind into our hearts and souls to create a newness within us a new taste, a new desire for God, so the Holy Spirit is the one who moves and creates this new heart within us. This is nothing short of a miracle, what we call the new birth. And so union is then created. So you have parties. You have the recreation of one of the parties so that union can take place. Union is created. The marriage covenant. We say, quoting Genesis two don't we? A man shall leave his mother and his father and hold fast to his wife, and what shall they be? They shall become what? One flesh. One flesh. This union that occurs between a man and a woman points to the union that's intended for us with God himself. It's why we say that that marriage is a picture of one's relationship with God. Hebrews 8, verse 10, look at this with me. You can see the pronouncement, and they shall become one flesh. When When it quotes here, it says, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. There is a description of coming together in union pronounced. Now, I'm sure that if you've been following along with me, I'm talking about a new heart, new affections for Christ. We who have been saved for a while recognize that we can have a desire for God and we want to be loyal to God, but we still find within ourselves this principle and tendency to sin, right? We still have this. What makes us, you know, different? What makes us, you know, why, don't, why doesn't God disown us when we sin? And this is the beauty of this new relationship that we have with God and the conditions. We've seen the terms, but now we need to see the conditions of this new covenant. Verse 11 through 12, the conditions of this covenant are described from God's perspective from God's perspective. It's not from actually our perspective. We're seeing it from God's perspective. In fact, uh, he says, he says um, I will put my laws. I will be their God. And if you drop down to verse 12, you say, I, he says, I will be merciful. I will remember their sins no more. God is the one who initiates, and it's on his back, if you will, that this relationship is guaranteed. God is making sure that this this arrangement will not fail. God is the one who is proactive. What's beautiful here is that, yes, we may sin, but we have a permanent ministry to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. There is... Mercy day by day for those who have been given the first fruits of this covenant. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit. There is an immediate promise here for us, but there is also a future, future coming that the old nature is going to be completely done away. Because we have been given the Holy Spirit now, and we, we, we sense within our souls this love and this desire. I mean, we, we, we can't go, if we're genuinely born again, we can't persist in sin. Our hearts break down and weep. If we are truly born again, that desire within us will blossom and draw us back into union with Him. Yes, we still have some residual sin nature, but there is a future promise here of a total eradication of that old nature. God's put within our hearts a new heart. There's seeds there. There's desires that have never been there before for God and to love Him. Now, in this text, there is a future promise here as well, that the true sons and the daughters gradually over time, will be revealed. Notice that it says there, um, and they shall not teach each one his neighbor and each one his brother, saying, know the Lord. The answer is, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest. Um, There's gonna be a day, in other words, where you won't have to ask someone that you love dearly, are you born again? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior? Because when Christ returns, the veil of who is a believer and who is not a believer will be done away with. We will know who are His and who are not. We won't have to ask people if they have been born again. And so, it's important for us to realize that as time goes on, there is a revelation even within a congregation of who is truly born again or not. If people are presenting endurance, presenting fruits, there'll be some indications that people are truly born again. But we never deal with, we're never completely assured until actually when Jesus Christ returns. And so, it's important for us to understand that in the conditions of this new covenant, God is the one who keeps covenant with us and for us. He was the one who plants the Holy Spirit within us. And those who are His children cannot be ashamed. They will not be ashamed. He will not let them go. Now, there is a near promise. I said there's a far promise, but there's also a near promise in which he says in verse 12, I will be merciful towards their iniquities. I will remember their sins no more. That's because this whole arrangement is enacted on a a better promise. Uh, There's a chain of events that are necessary to create a union with God. But it's at God's initiative. It was His plan, and He shed Christ's blood to create atonement for your life. He did this, and He's, he's going to be merciful towards the iniquities that we commit. He's not going to remember our sins anymore. There is a Tremendous promise that's in these verses. The cost of of this relationship has been paid for and has been created a, a permanent relationship with Him. You know, you can't have union or relationship with someone who refuses to forgive. Think about that for a moment. If someone will not forgive you, how can you have relationship with them? You will not be in a place of sweet union. You'll always be on the outside. That's not what God does. He creates the ability to forgive you. Forgiveness is always painful for someone whose dignity and honor has been violated. Have you ever had to forgive someone who has besmirched your name in public? That can be almost more painful than if someone were to hit you. You know, the reason why The world does not want to accept the blood of Jesus Christ as the principle by which Christ forgives people. It's because people don't want to recognize the cost of what it takes to forgive another person. The blood of Jesus Christ being shed is God's way of showing you what it costs to forgive you. And the reason we will not recognize, the reason the world will not recognize the blood of Christ is because of pride. God has created this system where a life for a life is required in order for there to be forgiveness. This is something that is very important for us to grasp. And I know I I feel as though I'm not quite doing justice to it. There are some Christians who will downplay the blood sacrifice of Christ because there's an offense to it. There was a time when the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America attempted to change the words of in Christ alone. The song that the Gettys had put out, we, we have sung, we sing, and we love to sing, and the words that they wanted to change were these. On that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. They wanted to change it to the love of God was magnified because they had a problem with the doctrine of satisfaction. What does it take for God to be satisfied so that he might forgive your sins. Satisfaction occurs when the weight of sins and payments for sins become equal. It's like the waves of the sea, there's ebbs and flows, right? When is it at peace and at still? When is it satisfied? It's satisfied when there are no ups and downs, it's nice and even, right? the Gettys held their ground and said, you're not changing the words of our song. We're actually going to require you not to put that in your songbook. And the reason for that is that they recognize that the value that God places upon the blood for sinners to create satisfaction is so great that we cannot change that valuation. We cannot change the valuation of that blood. That's what God has said your sin has done to Him. He, your sin has created such an offense to Him that the only way that your sin can be reconciled is that you accept the cost that was required for your salvation. A life for a life. Blood for blood. We have to Recognize that the blood of Christ is so central to our salvation. It cannot be adjusted, it cannot be changed, because it's all of grace. We can't give our blood to bring the scales into place. We have to have God do that for us, and so we have to humble ourselves. We can't have pride in our hearts saying, oh, it's okay. If I just do a little bit more, if I just, you know, be a little bit nicer to my spouse, or I just do all of these things, what we're doing is we're devaluating the blood of Christ. We're saying that it's, it's not worthy. And so then we're saying, God's not worthy to be satisfied by, to be satisfied See, the conditions of the new covenant are of grace alone. We are at fault. We have to have God fix us. And he does that at the expense of the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ. And it creates a permanent relationship with him. See, we have to look at the cross and see the cost of atonement and value it. That's what saving faith is. That's eyes to see, ears to hear. That's recognizing how great the cost for our salvation. And what this does is it it highlights the superiority of this new covenant. In verse 13, you know, after reflecting on the prophecy of Jeremiah, the writer here says, and speaking of a new covenant... He makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. It's ready to fade away. So there's that temporary nature to the old. Because the blood of Jesus Christ creates a permanent. This doesn't mean that the Old Testament text that we have in our Bibles is, you know, to be chucked and Put aside, what it means is that the old way of relating to God has changed. What we have recorded in the Old Testament is good for our instructions so we understand about the holiness and nature of God. That's important for us to see. But how we relate to God is not through the ceremonies and the laws of the Old Testament. It's actually now through the blood of Jesus Christ alone. The blood of Jesus Christ purchases atonement union for your life. But it does not just stop there. It actually also provides us something greater too. The blood of Jesus Christ purchases the gift of the Holy Spirit for us so that we can have true union with God. See, this is the permanent ministry of the blood of Christ it creates this union. And that union is the union that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have enjoyed for all of eternity. That joy is now given to His people so that they might have union and joy and peace and love. That's our gift now. And it tells us of an even greater expectation of what we're going to enjoy when Christ returns. All of that veil, you know, the sensation within our hearts where we know that we are born again, think about actually being able to hug the one who saved you. You will become one with Christ. The joy of union is given to us. We have the first fruits available. See, a person who is truly born again is not going to want to persist in sin because there is within them this this principle of joy, this principle of holiness that compels them to walk with God. This is the glories of the permanent ministry of the blood of Jesus Christ. We have the gift of the Holy Spirit with us. See, social contracts... Covenants, they, they have all these terms and agreements and they're intended to create safe relationship with people. Of course, lots can go wrong in relationships and so we have to have some of these terms and conditions to, to protect people, sinners. And lots could go wrong in those situations. They're necessary. But, and that's what's so, so essential about the blood of Jesus Christ because it protects us. It, it holds us close and in union with God because he forgives our sins. He will be merciful to our iniquities. He will remember our sins no more. You know, there are many religions out there who try to produce moral, law-abiding people. There are a lot of nice people out there But there is only one faith which produces real union with God. And it's through Christ. It is through Christ. Everything else will break down. And the greatest breakdown is going to be when when we pass from this life into the next and find out that we don't have union with God we have disunion and we go off into eternal hell. The great union that's available to us will produce eternal joy, eternal hope. There is only one faith, and it's in the blood of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.